Well, our lesson for this morning is emotional exclusivity as the sign of love. And our text, once again, is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God bless the reading of his word, and let us bow our heads in a word of prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you afresh for the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ, for the perfect teaching ministry of your blessed Holy Spirit, and for his ability to explain your word. So give us the words and help us to say them with liberty, with clarity, and with boldness, and that somebody listening might believe the report. Thanking you in advance for all that you are going to do in the strong and perfect name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Now, thank you very much for coming to hear this message this morning. And before we begin this, our next lesson, let us reiterate our reason for coming to church. We come to church to obtain the mind of Christ, meaning to have the Bible illuminated in our minds so that we can clearly understand the principles that Jesus taught and base our daily personal decisions on those principles. We come to church because we want to be obedient to the Bible, which is the doctrine of Jesus Christ in an informed, insightful, and intelligent manner. Now, the basis of marriage is exclusivity in both meeting our spouse's emotional needs and getting our own emotional needs met. That's what the part in the marriage vows about keeping yourselves only unto him or her means. Marriage means that you agree to turn only to this person out of all the people in the world to have your emotional needs met and that you agree to be the person that meets the emotional needs of the person that you marry exclusively. For the rest of your life, you are responsible for the emotional well-being, happiness, and equilibrium of your spouse. Yes, you. To redundantly reiterate, the basis of marriage is exclusivity. Now, exclusivity is not common in life. Were you to find yourself hungry while standing on the corner of Holmes Road and Martin Luther King Boulevard in Lansing, you'd be able to look to the north and see Burger King, Arby's, McDonald's, Long John Silver's, Kentucky Fried Chicken, and Popeye's, as well as a place where they sell fresh fish and will cook it for you. Look to the south, and you'll see Tim Hortons, Wendy's, and Kroger's. Were you to find yourself in need of warm clothing while standing on the corner of West Saginaw and Mall Drive, you would be faced with a multiplicity of clothing choices in the Lansing Mall, and then across the street at Myers and the other clothing stores in the strip mall just to the west of Myers. And if you don't like any of the restaurants or clothing stores that I have mentioned, you can go to another corner and find different ones. One of the byproducts of living in the United States of America, a free country with a market economy, is that when it comes to obtaining goods and service, we have a great amount of choice bounded only by our personal budgets. Marriage, however, is intended to be contrary to the appetites that we have developed as consumers. Marriage is designed to be an exclusive relationship. I have a tentative plan to travel to Chicago, Illinois a week from next Monday because my father is having cataract surgery on the following day. 
Lord willing, on that Monday morning, I will gas up my car and pack up my clothes so that I can be at my father's house by Tuesday morning. But what do you think will happen if a crisis comes up in Marie's family on Monday morning? God forbid, some, suppose someone with whom Marie is very close gets hit by a car and is in the hospital in critical condition that day. Suppose someone calls her on Monday morning at her office and then she calls me to tell me that she has to travel somewhere to see about her relative. My dad is still having surgery the next day. Am I still going to Chicago? No, I'm not. I've taken a vow to be the one to whom Marie can turn exclusively to have her emotional needs met, and I have the obligation to fulfill my vow. I'm concerned about Dad, but I never took a vow to support him in the way that I took a vow to support Marie. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 4 through 7 tells me, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands. For in the multitude of dreams and many words, there is also vanity, but fear God. Well, I might rationalize, I didn't actually take a vow to God. I took a vow to Marie. However, if I think back, at the end of my vow, I said, according to God's holy ordinance, and thereunto I pledge you my faith. So my vow was made in keeping with God's ordinance, and I pledged my faithfulness to keep the vow. And at the conclusion of the ceremony, the minister echoed that which Jesus said in the B portion of Matthew 19 and 6, Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So the marital vow really is a vow to God, and Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 4 through 7 does apply. Now, it is interesting that when God decided to create marriage, he said in Genesis 2.18, and the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. I guess God meant what he said. God create, next created the animals, and God could easily have created an army of helpers for man, but as God said, he made a singular helper for him. So from the beginning, exclusivity has been the hallmark of marriage. Without exclusivity, marriages do not do well. And God has hardwired human beings such that in the normative case, we find it best to have a singular specific helper to meet our emotional needs. Just as God sent us one savior, he gives us one person to meet these needs. However, we generally have a problem with God's plan because of the fact that we live in a market economy and are used to having alternatives to getting our needs for goods and services met. We are used to having alternatives to getting our needs met. We generally have parents to meet our emotional needs before we get married, and it is a great temptation to continue to rely upon our parents to do the job after we get married. God, however, specifically tells us 
that we need to give up the old when we embrace the new. Genesis 2.24 tells us, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The need to leave parents, who are our first emotional support, is specified in the same passage of Scripture in which marriage is defined initially. The need to transfer our emotional support from our parents to our spouses are defi is defined before parents are actually an issue. Both Adam and Eve were created fully grown by God, and neither of them had human parents when they married. And since the proclamation to leave parents clearly does not apply to Adam and Eve, Genesis 2.24 is meant as a universal principle. I would submit to you that if the person to whom you would like to be married is overly attached to their parents, they have not reached a sufficient state of maturity to take wedding vows. Ladies, consider how you would feel if your husband put his mother's thoughts and feelings before yours when making decisions about situations. Brothers, consider how you would feel if your wife's mother was really the one making the decisions about how your home was run or how often you and your wife should be intimate. Now, as I said at the beginning of this conversation, the key to marriage is emotional exclusivity. God seems to have an affinity for separating the men that he chooses to create his nations from their parents. Genesis chapter 7, verse 1 and 7 tells us, Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. So Noah, with his son, his wives, and his son wives, went into the ark because of the waters of the flood. Notice Noah took his immediate family into the ark, not his extended family. Listen to Genesis 12, 1 through 4, which says, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you... All of the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Notice, Abram left his extended family when he went to Canaan to make a great nation. Next, Abram's grandson Jacob left his extended family when he went to Lot's house to obtain his four wives and 13 children. In Genesis 28, verses 1 through 5, which says, Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take yourself a wife from there of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may be an assembly of peoples, and give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you, that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. So Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram to Laban the son of Bethuel the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. Joseph, Jacob's son, saved his family 
from the famine in Canaan and established them in Egypt because he first left his family, although not voluntarily. Zenith 30, 37, 26 to 28 records, So Judah said to his brother, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh, and his brothers listened. Then the Midianite traders passed by. So the brothers pulled Joseph and lifted him up out of the pit, sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. So Joseph was sold into slavery in Egypt, but later became the second in command in Egypt, married the Pharaoh's daughter, and was in charge when his brothers came seeking food. 400 years later, Moses, his great-grandson, led the Israelites to leave Egypt and return to Canaan, but all the Israelites that actually left Egypt died on the trip back. When Joshua, Moses' successor, took over, he had an entirely new nation of people to lead. And it appears to be in the plan of God for generations to start over, to learn their own lessons and make their own families. As we have already read, Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Leaving father and mother promotes exclusivity between husband and wife. The immediate interference of parents can be destructive to the development of an independent relationship between husband and wife in marriage, which is why God suggests leaving. However, God does not just suggest that spouses leave their parents. God also suggests spouses joining with one another, which makes my initial point that being that marriage is designed to be an exclusive emotional relationship between husband and wife. Of course, it logically follows that if marriage is designed to be an exclusive emotional relationship between husband and wife, that each spouse has the responsibility to follow through on their commitment to meet the other spouse's emotional needs. Marriage is a leap, and exclusivity means that you are giving up your fallback position. You are putting all of your emotional eggs in one basket. Exclusivity means that the person that you are relying on to take care of your emotional situation is your spouse. Exclusivity means that marriage is really an all or nothing proposition. Now the problem that arises for many of us, as I have mentioned, is that it is counterintuitive to us to have an exclusive supplier for any commodity, including meeting our emotional needs. I listened once to a comic on a joke tape and talking about marital commitments, he said, show me a husband who won't and I'll show you a neighbor who will. There's a great temptation for us to disregard the exclusive nature of our marital vows, especially when we perceive that our spouse is not doing an immediate enough, immediate enough job keeping up with our emotional needs. The interesting thing about this level of intimacy is that generally speaking, it is difficult to be intimate to this degree with more than one person at a time. When we have an intimate conversation with our spouse, they generally consider it a betrayal to tell other people the content of the conversation. Judges chapter 16 records an interesting situation about a biblical character named Samson 
who was a judge of Israel that God had blessed with superhuman strength. Samson had taken on the Philistines in battle and defeated them several times, and the Philistines wanted to destroy him. Samson, unfortunately, disregarded the commandment of God to not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever and took a foreign woman, Delilah, as his lover. The Philistines thought that Delilah could use her position as Samson's intimate to interrogate him and find out the secret of his strength, and they recruited her to do so. Judges chapter 16, verse 4 and 5 says, Afterwards it happened that Samson loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said, Entice him, and find out where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to afflict him, and every one of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah agreed to betray her lover and proceeded to interrogate him about the source of his strength. Judges 16, 6 through 9 records, So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and with what you may be bound to afflict you. And Samson said to her, if they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings not yet dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So the lords of the Philistines brought her seven fresh bowstrings not yet dried, and she bound him with them. Now men were lying in wait, staying with her in the room. And she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he broke their bowstrings as a strand of yard breaks when it touches fire. So the secret of his strength, was not known. Now, although Delilah was having marital relations with Samson, she could not persuade Samson to betray himself. Samson told her several lies about the source of his strength, and each time she did what Samson said would take away his strength. But Delilah found out that Samson had deceived her. However, as their relationship continued in Judges 16 and 15, then Delilah said to Samson, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times and have not told me where your great strength lies. An intimate relationship requires a certain level of emotional intimacy. Delilah played her emotional hole card by questioning his love for her repeatedly, and she wore him down. Judges 16, 16-21 records, And it came to pass that she pestered him daily with her words and pressed him so that his soul was vexed to death. Samson told her with all his heart and said to her, No razor has ever come upon my head, for I have been, I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I am shaven, then my strength will leave me and I will become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that she, he had told her all his heart, she sent and called for the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come once more, for he has told me all his heart. So the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hand. Then she lulled him to sleep on her knees and called for a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. She said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as before at other times, and shake myself free, but he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Then the Philistines took him and put out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza. 
They bound him with bronze fetters, and he became a grinder in the prison. Samson could not be defeated by the military mount of the Philistine army, but Samson was vulnerable to the one who knew him in the biblical sense. Marriage is an agreement to be intimate, an agreement to make the person with whom we are taking vows the one person with whom we can share our most intimate secrets, an agreement to give complete knowledge of ourselves to that person and to obtain and treasure the complete knowledge of that person so that we can truly have emotional, spiritual, intellectual, and finally physical intercourse with one another. Infidelity, emotional or physical, is devastating to a marriage. Donna was discussing her husband's infidelity with her counselor. Donna said, my husband left for his soulmate. He told me that he was in love with another woman. The counselor said, where did she come from? Donna said, she was a receptionist at his office. He's in management, and it was just one of those classical things. They had a lot in common. They started spending time together, and all of a sudden, they're soulmates. We hadn't been having a bad marriage. Everything's been great. We just celebrated the holidays, and then I just got sucker punched Friday night. You know, it's been a devastating weekend. But yesterday, he sent me an email, and he called and said that he wants to come home, that he broke it off with her. I'm just so confused. I want my family back, but I feel betrayed. The counselor said, why do you think he did that? Donna said, um, well, I, I think he's immature, but he says that it's because he wasn't getting a lot of affection and attention, hugs and kisses and warm fuzzies at home. He never communicated to me that he wanted more affection, and he wasn't being more affectionate with me. I thought that we were just living and working. The counselor said, Donna? Donna said, yes, ma'am. He said, you let the marriage go. Donna said, you're probably right. So our counselor said, well, you're getting a second chance. You have two options now. You can spend your time whining about what he did, which was absolutely wrong, and that's not totally unreasonable. Or you can say, thank God I have a second chance to turn this back into a marriage where, he, where when he thinks of a woman that's going to make him feel loved and cherished and warm, warm fuzzy, he thinks of Donna. Donna said, right, but, and the counselor said, don't say but. Let me be honest about this. Some women have been brought up to think that they don't owe their husband anything. Donna said, but I don't think I'm like that. I do so much for him. But the counselor said, do you know anybody on the face of the earth that doesn't have a severe psychiatric problem, that doesn't yearn to be told loving things and hugged and this and that and the other stuff. Donna said, but I haven't been unaffectionate. Kyle said, okay, Donna, since you're going to be in total denial, this is not going to work. You might as well tell him to stay out. Donna says, no, I realize I have work to do. So the counselor said, how can you say that you realize you have work to do when you tell me that everything was swell? Donna said, well, there just wasn't a lot of arguing, so I guess that's why I thought everything was okay. So the counselor said, well, tell me how you're going to make it better when you deny that there's anything that you needed to do more or better or differently. 
So Donna said, okay, I know that there are some things we need to do more, both of us. The counselor said, not we, you. You are resistant. Listen, he's been with you for over a decade. You have a kid in common. You have a home together. You have history. You have an extended family and so on. And yet the skirt got his attention. Donna said, yeah, I know, I just, said, don't say I just. Vacuums don't exist in nature. Something fills them. And if he's not that mature, as you said, he needs to be stroked. And what he needs, you need to give him. Donna said, well, I really want to. Conza said, then stop lying to me and being in denial, giving me an argument and being resistant. What I need is for you to tell me two things you know you need to do to make him feel that his life is worth living with you. Dinah said, well, make out with him more. I said, okay, that's good, number two. Prioritize our, his needs, I guess. The caller said, guesses aren't good. The honey seemed to know what he needed and she's known him a lot less time than you have. I said, well, she's flowery and tells him I love you 27 billion different ways and I guess I don't. The counselor said, well, start doing it. Donna says, I guess you're right. Stop being resistant to his needs, said the counselor, and start giving it to him. If I was talking to him, I'd be saying stop being resistant to what she needs and start giving it to her. The point is that when you go to buy somebody a gift, you don't buy them what you would like. You buy them what you know they would like. So Donna said, how do you give attention and affection to somebody who just slept with somebody else and cheated, you, cheated, with, cheated on you for six weeks? I mean, how do you go from what happened to what you're saying? The counselor said, because you realize that the situation was somewhat your fault. The decision and the action to cheat was his and it was wrong. He breached the vows, there's no question about it. Don't think for a moment that I'm whitewashing anything that he did. But we have, as I said, two choices. We can whine or we can live. Donna said, but what about the role modeling for my daughter? She knows. If I just let him back in, won't it be a bad example for her? Men can just cheat on you and you let them come back whenever they want? The counselor said, you're very stubborn. I don't have high hopes that this is going to work. You don't want to hear it. But I'll try one more time because I want to save your daughter's home. The reason that your daughter would be negatively affected is that you take the victim position that he did something to you, but you did not participate or have any responsibility at all. So to fix this, you sit with your daughter and say, you can look at things one way, or you can stand back and see the whole picture. You can look at one leaf, or you can stand back and see the whole forest. What your dad did was wrong, but it is important that a husband and a wife give each other the emotional things that they need, and I wasn't exactly doing that. And he needs to say, I got my emotional needs met the wrong way. Donna said, right. So the counselor said, so your daughter will learn something very important. Number one, people can screw up and you can come back from it. Number two, there are right ways and wrong ways to deal with disappointment. Number three, 
Forgiveness is a good thing as long as we have some serious hope for progress in the future. And number four, a woman's role is to love her man. Donna said, thank you very much. The counselor says, your husband has a history with you. He has a child with you. He has a home with you, and he's got future dreams with you. Treat him sweetly, and there's no skirt that could distract him. Donna said, you're right. Compton said, but don't get on your high horse about this. You hold some of the responsibility. Donna said, well, I do, I do. And the counselor said, and it's a good thing to admit to it because then you have power. If indeed you had no responsibility in this, you'd have no power to change it. If it were me, I'd rather take the responsibility and get the power. Now, for the last few weeks, we have discussed the various signs of love that we can give our spouses, speaking words of affirmation, spending quality time, giving gifts, performing routine acts of service, and providing physical affection. We all have a commitment to keep the vows that we have made, but keeping vows, involve, keeping vows involves more than not being unfaithful. Keeping vows also include providing our spouses with the emotional support that they need. We have examined the fact that different people need different types of emotional stimulation to make them happy, and that we have the responsibility to fulfill our spouses' needs in the manner that will best suit them. As the counselor said, when you get something for someone, you don't buy them what you need. You buy them what you know they need. Out on Calvary's hill, Jesus Christ knew what we needed. We needed forgiveness for our sinfulness. Jesus could have got on his high horse and condemned us for being sinners, but he loves us and decided that rather than condemn us, that he would restore us. The justice of God required that our sins be paid for, and since we could not pay the price for ourselves, Jesus gave his life on the old rugged cross to pay the penalty that we owe for the sins that we have committed. And when he had suffered enough so that the very last sin was paid for, Jesus hung his head in the locks on his shoulder and he died. Are we sinners? Yes, definitely. Do we deserve to be saved? By no means. But Romans chapter 5, verse 8 tells us, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We do not generally have to sacrifice our lives to show our love for our spouses, but God does expect us to keep, keep our vows to our spouses by meeting their emotional needs. That is the key to keeping our marriage vows. It's not enough to not sleep with someone other than our spouses, but we also have to give them that which they require to meet their emotional needs. John tells us in John 3.16 and John 1, 4, 14 and 11, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, 
we ought also to love one another. And that is our lesson for today. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you this morning, and we thank you for these lessons on love that you have given us. And we're asking you, Lord, that you'd make these things plain, that we might be able to understand them, that the examples that you give us might sink into our hearts, and that we might remember and that we might know our obligation to meet the emotional need of the one with whom we have taken vows. Help us, Lord, as we go down from this place to resolve to do a better job of that which we have already been doing to improve our serve and just help us, Lord, to keep our commitments and to reinforce them with the ones that we love. And we love you, Lord, because you first loved us and gave your life on Calvary's cross, that our sins might be forgiven, that we might be restored to the fellowship, and that we might be able to do those things in this life that are pleasing in your sight and have our sins forgiven on Judgment Day. And now, Lord, we thank you for all that are in the house today. We ask that you would give us traveling mercies as we go down from this place and then bring us back once again at the appointed time. And now, Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross arising from the dead on that Sunday morning. Thank you, Lord, in the wonderful name of Jesus we pray. Amen and thank God. Let's pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you this morning that you've given us another chance to come out and to uh, talk about your word and to share with one another the concerns that we have. We're asking you, Lord, that uh, you continue to bless us uh, here in this little place and that uh, you help that which uh, you have given us to uh, be clear and understandable to us uh, so that we can live our lives in accordance to what your word would have to say. Praying for Dr. Allen and his family, asking you to continue to bless them, and we're praying for Sister Allen and for her father, uh, who is a matter for prayer as he's not doing well physically. And we're asking you, Lord, that as uh, she goes to minister to him, uh, that she will be able to bring him some comfort and uh, that those who are taking care of him, uh, the doctors that are taking care of him, will be able to determine the cause of his malady and give him a remedy for it. And we also pray, Lord, that you would just let down the hem of your garment that he might touch you. For we know that just one touch from your garment will make us whole. And so we ask, Lord, that you bless in his case. Let's go with him and stand by him. We pray for all that Sister Allen has have asked us to pray for, for Brother Wilson especially, for the store. We ask you that you'd help their uh, traffic to increase. We're praying for Brother Hardrick as he uh, is still in the hospital and is recovering from his accident. We ask you, Lord, that you uh, be, be there with him. Praying continually for Maury and Dwayne Curtis for, for their marriage and uh, for Sheila Hersey and for Anthony White, who we've added to our list today. And we're asking you, Lord, that, uh, uh, that since you know the need, that you would meet that need according to your riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Thanking you for those whom my wife is concerned about. We're asking you, Lord, that uh, you continue to give our son uh, the skill and the knowledge that he needs to perform that, uh, that job that he has uh, well and to do those things that are required 
uh, that they might continue to uh, promote him up the line. We pray for all that uh, my wife is concerned about. Uh, we're glad that her mother is doing better, and we're asking you, Lord, that uh, you continue to bless her. Uh, praying for the wills as well, and we're asking you, Lord, that uh, you would resolve that situation. Uh, just, just bless Brother Wills as he is dealing with that, sit that, that cancer situation. Go with him and stand by him, guide him, bless him. We ask you to continue to bless Mother Z and just all that my wife is concerned about. Praying for Rick as he's back on the battlefield. And we're asking you, Lord, that you bless him and his young wife, uh, that you would uh, cement their relationship even in their absence. Give her the mind of a warrior wife that she might be able to support him even though uh, he's far away. And we ask you, Lord, that you keep him safe over there from all hurt, harm, and danger. Praying for those others that Paul is concerned about. We're asking, Lord, that you bless Amanda as she is coming near to the end of the term of uh, her gestation. We ask that you help their child to be healthy and help her to have uh, a, as good of an experience in birth, childbirth as can be had. And we just thank you, Lord, that, uh, that she's doing well, that her husband and she and her husband are doing well, and we ask you to continue to go with them and stand by. Praying for Brother Edwards, Lord, we're asking you that you bless his family, continue to bless those young fellas as they are going to school and just give them steel trap minds as they uh, have, uh, as whatever the teacher tells them in the class, whatever the book says that they have to read, just help them to retain it and just give them that which they need to excel in the thing that they have put their hand to do. We're continuing in prayer for Brother Edwards' grandmother and we're asking you, Lord, that you would navigate his circumstances uh, and then allow something that's here in Lansing uh, for which he is eligible to transfer to to become a reality for him. Uh, we ask you, Lord, that you take him off that dangerous highway and allow him to just travel in town to work every day, and we just ask you that you go with him and stand by him, and th we thank you for it. Praying for Brother Lee and his family, we're asking you, Lord, that you bless them as uh, they may be traveling today on their way back to Pennsylvania to take uh, dares back to school. And we just ask you uh, that you go with them and stand by them. Uh, just be with them on the dangerous highway. We pray for those whom they've asked us to pray for, for, uh, for Brother Samuel Lani. And we just ask you, Lord, that you don't, or Sister Samuel Lani, I should say, and we just ask you, Lord, that uh, you continue to bless, bless Sister Lee and uh, just help her to reestablish her equilibrium as. She has that depression over her mother's death. And we just ask you, Lord, that uh, you just be a doctor in that sick room. Just go in there and uh, just uplift her spirits uh, that she might be able to uh, continue that which she is doing for her family and for those whom, to whom she has responsibility. We're praying for the others that they have asked us to pray for, and we ask you, Lord, that you bless all that they have on the list. Thanking you for Mother McClure being here today, and we just ask you, Lord, that you continue to allow her to enjoy her time here with us and uh, that you would keep the weather hospitable, that she might not be uh, overly inconvenienced by the winter weather. And we just ask you, Lord, that you go with her and stand by her as, as she is enjoying the situation here in Lansing right now. We're praying, we're thanking you that uh, Brother Hale and Brother Rogers have uh, progressed in their uh, recovery to the point that we can take them off of our list. We're praying for Janelle and J.J. as they're back in school, and we're asking you, Lord, uh, that you would help them. Uh, just give them that which they need as they go through this term in college, and just uh, uh, give them 
the ability to focus, give them the ability to get those things done that need to be done, that they might come up with the results that, that their parents desire that will bless them. Continuing in prayer for Brother Horton, we're asking you, Lord, that you continue to bless him. And we're also asking you, Lord, that you bless all the rest of the ones that the McClure's have asked us to pray for. Now I'm praying for Dad, Lord. He has a surgery scheduled in a couple of weeks, and we're asking you, Lord, that you just make it a routine situation for the doctors, give them uh, the skill that they might be able to remedy that situation and uh, not have any side effects or repercussions or complications or anything like that. Just make it a routine day for him as he goes under the knife once again and just allow him to come out and uh, just restore that vision uh, that he is lacking in that one eye. We're praying for Marvin as he flies around the country, and we're asking you, Lord, that you give him traveling mercies and that you bring him to the city safely and that you allow us to have a great time as we get together. Also praying for Uncle Jab and uh, Aunt Elizabeth and Uncle James and Aunt Barbara and Aunt Naomi. Just bless the family, Lord, and just help those who are our elders to be a good, uh, to enjoy these days that they have there, their senior days in the city. We just ask you to keep them safe, keep them, keep them healthy, and allow us to call on them when we need counsel and give us that which we require that we might be able to grow up and be like them. Praying for the Perkins down in uh, Louisiana and for the Northerns in Houston, Texas. Bless those young men who are raising those young families. And we just ask you, Lord, that you go with those children and stand by them even as you have with the rest of them. And now, Lord, we're just asking you that you bless the little place that you've given us here. Uh, bless uh, the television station and all of the uh, people in the armed forces that are putting their lives on the line for the country. Keep them safe. Put your hedge of protection around them that they might be able uh, to come home to their families as well. We pray for the young men and women in this neighborhood and for the salvation of any of our family and friends that might not know you in the pardon of their sins. Now, we thank you for the place and we thank you for the word. And we ask that you keep us safe and keep us strong as we work on it in the next week and prepare for the next time we come together. Now, Lord, I pray for my wife, who's the love of my life, and I ask you that you would continue to bless us, allow us to, to be bound together with cords of love that cannot be broken. And now, Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross, for rising from the dead on that Sunday morning. Thank you, Lord, in the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and thank God. Jesus Christ died on the old rugged cross out on Calvary's hill. He suffered and he bled and he died that our sins might be forgiven, that we might have a right and a just right to the tree of life. He gave his life to pay the penalty that we owe for the sins that we have committed. And we commemorate his sacrifice with this bread and this wine, his body and his blood, that we might remember as we go down from this place that he loves us so much that he gave his life and that we are to give our lives for one another. Let us remember all that Jesus Christ did for us. And let us remember him now as we eat and drink together. Remember the love of God, the grace of Jesus Christ, and the sweet communion of the Holy Spirit 
Rest in the Bible that's now henceforth and forevermore. Let every heart say, 